All right, do it. Yeah, I'm here. Easy button. Yeah, the easy button. Easy, easy podcast 101. If everybody knew how easy these were, everybody would be doing a podcast today. True. Which nice. I think they are. I, I, mean, I think everybody has a podcast. I was, uh, I called my, I called my daughter in to help me out with something, and she's like, "Dad, I'm, I'm doing my podcast." So she's <laughs> like, "Give me, give me five minutes." It's the ADD version of podcasting. So we have the opposite of that. We have the not so ADD version. Uh, I'm sure some people like chunk it up and break it down, and they have to listen to it in 10 minute bursts or 15 minute bursts. But you know, those of or you who on are 1.5x speed, yeah, which I think is great, especially as you know, Brent really likes to emphasize things sometimes. <laughs> but I put uh, the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah, we're here, and we've got at least uh, an hour's worth of information for you coming, and this time. The goal of this show, like, let me rewind this, right? So this is the hot aisle. I got excited about podcasting for six-year-olds uh, or seven, whatever she is. This is the hot aisle. I'm Brian Carpenter, my co-host. <laughs> Brent Piatti, good is, morning. Is laughing at me. Good morning. And uh, the goal of this show is to discuss, we're going to discuss predictive analytics. We're going to discuss machine learning, business intelligence, and frankly, how you can get those things without being a PhD because... Not everybody has one, and frankly, I'll never get one, and I still want those things. So we brought people on, as usual, to be smarter than us, and this time, what we have is the CEO of Big Squid, and his name is Chris Knock. Chris, welcome to the hot aisle. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me, guys. How's yeah, it going? Everything is great, and thanks for tolerating. So, uh, you know... We, I, I love talking to CEOs. I, I have, are you the, are you a business CEO or are you a technical CEO? Uh, you know, I think I'm aspirationally a technical CEO. I started as a programmer. That's what my degree is in. Um, but I haven't, I haven't actually driven a machine in a while. So I think I'm just aspirationally technical at this point. Uh, you know, like a wannabe nerd. Uh, and I, you know, I understand the business side pretty well at this point. Yeah, that's awesome because Brett and I have been aspirationally technical our entire careers. So we feel <laughs> you, right. we're right with you. Well, so, well, that's exactly right. Well, I mean, you 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 set the bar pretty high. Like I I'm not here to be a PhD in math either. Like let's set that let's set that expectation right now. Uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to solve a problem for myself over at Big Squid that I think other people like myself have, and. Uh, that when I when I know I've solved my problem, I know I've solved a big problem when it comes to machine learning and predictive analytics. Right, and the bell curve is real. There's a lot of us that are just you know happy to be 70th percentilers, right? So uh, you know we got somebody's got to give us tools that allow us to be successful too. Too, and uh, you know we've had tons of podcasts, Brent, where people have talked about the fact that there's a ton of information out there, and frankly, you can have a lot of information, but it actually getting to it, making it available, and making it you know essentially accessible for everybody is where the real power's at. Um, and so, Chris, I have a feeling you have the same opinion, but we're about to find that out. So yeah. today you're the CEO of Big Squid. Um, you know, frankly, tell us you know, Big Squid's three years old, uh, which means it's ready for its own podcast. So tell us a little bit about Big Squid. Yeah, well, um, actually, technically, we're about eight and a half years old. Uh, but our our pivot in we started as a uh, very analytics driven digital marketing agency and consulting firm. Uh, very much data to dollars, math to dollars, statistics to dollars, even those things are all kind of the same thing. But uh, we pivoted hard into BI, big data, and predictive analytics, machine learning, all that buzzword bingo nonsense uh, about three years ago. So I would say the current iteration is about three years old. Um, we uh, started really uh, you know, as a consulting firm, and we were helping people tackle you know, the challenge of turning your data into valuable insights, which is a lot e easier said than done. And then we found out that the tools out there are pretty good at doing that. But the minute you can then see your data in real time, uh, people get greedy, uh, as I would expect them to be. And then suddenly they want to get uh, forecast insights and causation insights and start getting into more statistical uh, insights. And we just saw this huge opportunity to, you know, like, I don't know how to say it any other way than to just dumb it down, take it out of academia and make it actionable. Right. So, uh, we're now a software company, you know, we're, a we're a venture backed software company focused on bringing, uh, predictive analytics and machine learning to like actual decision makers. So they can actually do something with it rather than it being an interesting 
academic study as it typically is in a lot of businesses today. And so you have, I mean, you have a lot of, um, I mean, frankly, you have a bit of it, what I look to see is marketing and other background besides just a tech background. You've done tech things. So how does, you know, being VP of strategy and VP of client service and VP of marketing help you with what you're doing today? Like, tell us about kind of the history of all the other things you've kind of done in your career, or at least the things that LinkedIn told us you've done. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, I was going to say, those are, those are, some of those are LinkedIn titles. Uh, uh, you guys know what those are. Uh, but, uh, Basically, what, what I did was I started in as a programmer, right? That's what I got my degree in. And I just happened to not be the best programmer, but what I was good at is translating technology for businesses. And I learned that in around 99, 2000. Uh, it happened to be during the growth of Google and Yahoo and that whole digital marketing explosion that those guys led, Omniture, where I was for about five years. Um, and I just kept going further and further from fully technical into sales and marketing, which, you know, arguably is the other end of the spectrum and functional roles inside of a business. And, uh, you know, it, it, the nice part is, is I got to touch about every functional area of a business, manage P&Ls, manage client services, did implementations, manage products, did sales and marketing. So, uh, you know, it, it, from, from that perspective, uh, I think it's time to go translate that, not just for marketing, but translate and use technology to translate math and and analytical insights into every functional area of a business. That's what I'm like really pumped to go out and do and that we're doing right now. Right on. So what got you started in tech, man? I mean, you went to school, you got a degree <laughs> in programming CIS and and, in, and it looks like you even focused on business, right? So yeah. you kind of like had a, had a, a, a leg in both sides, right? Uh, so, so what got you interested? Was it a family thing? Did you see a commercial on TV? You're like, oh, wow, the Nintendo. Cool. I want to like make games for that. Well, like, honestly, like my first two years of college, I was a theater major. Uh, and this was during like the late nineties, but I'd also, I'd had a computer, like I'm a, I'm a cusp millennial. I was born in 79. So, uh, I had a computer in my house from age four on just because my uncle was, a was an engineer at AT&T and I got early access to computers, probably arguably too early access. I was like a nine and 10 year old on the internet back then, which was like CompuServe and BBS, right? Like, and I just learned technology in order to download video games and, and you know, get it for free. It was all freeware. Some of it wasn't freeware. Some of it was probably illegal. I was exposed <laughs> to things that a 12 year old should have never seen on, you know, especially once the, the internet, I got to watch the internet go from like text to visual to video throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And what happened was I was, I was a theater major, but I wanted a family. And in Georgia, I could get like a free college degree with a B average. And if I just raised my hand and said, I'm a CIS major and I happen to know how to like do networking configuration and HTML, I could get like a $20 an hour job in 99, which like that was like I was printing money as a college kid. And then, you know, I, I realized, hey, like this is something that can allow me to push my ideas out into the world and change the world. And I'm, I'm a builder at heart. And I just kind of clung to it. And it's been no looking back since. Awesome. Cool. So uh, you've made the transition from, you know, kind of quote unquote programmer, technical guy to now CEO of the company. Um, what, what, what kind of mindset changes have you had to make to take on that role? What kind of tool sets or, or toolkitting did you have to, to build out to run an organization and run a PNL, um, which is very different than writing code? Yeah, I mean, you'd think it is, but, you know, that you, I haven't really thought about it that way. But it, thinking about that, um, when you write code, you good coders know what they're building and they kind of architect it and outline what they're about to go out and build. They're very methodical about it. Um, that's how I've attacked business, right? It's um, I try to operate in, you know, kind of the role of three. You know, it's very difficult to manage to more than three outcomes simultaneously, uh, you know, be it a department, be it a business, be it somebody that, you know, you were either managing or managing up to, right? So that was one of the skills that I just, you know, I just happened to have a really good mentor, uh, uh, guy by the name of Matt Belkin. He's actually the COO of Domo. Uh, and he just, 
I was like the guy that had tons of ideas and he just provided that level of focus. He was like, I always need to know what your top three things you need from me are. And these are the three things that I need you focused on and do those, you know, execute on those things, have focus. And, you know, I've, I've just applied that ever since. Right. Uh, that and, uh, you know, when it comes to building out teams, I, I kind of follow what my father taught me about marriage, which is he always told me, son, marry, marry well and get the hell out of the way. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I've translated that into business uh, to hire well and get the hell out of the way and enable people, right? Hey, these are the three things I need you to do. Let me know the things that you need in order to be successful to do these things. And I'm going to hold you accountable to it. And it, and it's shocking how, how successful you can be just doing that. Don't be Absolutely. surprised if we name this podcast "Hire Well and Get the Hell Out of the Way." By the way, so nice, like nice. That. Yeah. So should I, I trademark that? You should. So uh, yeah, I think uh, as I as I interrupt Brent with my jokes, which is what I do on a weekly basis, I think he was about to ask a big, you know, right, get right into it, right? Big squid. So go ahead, Brent. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. My so you kind of gave us a high-level overview, right? Uh, it's you guys have pivoted into uh, predictive analytics software and machine learning, and and it's uh, you guys have a predictive toolkit. So speaking of you know CEO toolkits, um, you have a product that that is the predictive toolkit. So tell us about this pivot into the software world and what you guys are offering and what uh, customers are doing with it. Yeah, I mean, so I mean. It was bound to happen. I spent, what, 17 years in software, and then suddenly I found myself at a services shop, and it wasn't going to stay that way. I mean, we were all of three, four months into servicing BI uh, solutions before we realized, hey, there, there's a hole in the market. And if I had like a slide where to, sh to show you, I mean, the way I would describe it, and maybe I can describe this visually, is... Um, when you're, when you're doing a BI implementation, people tend to start, they, I almost call it breach birth design, right? Like they, they start with their data and it's led by the technical teams. And I don't think that's how it should happen. Our, our approach is lead with what are the business outcomes that, uh, you're trying to drive and what information do you need to collect that you think is driving that business outcome, right? It could be, hey, what is our close rate on sales? And I'm tracking all these things out of, out of Salesforce and our other marketing systems that I think indicate success of sales. And then you just collate your data. So you want to connect to your very, so once you design that question, the next steps that you're doing are essentially connecting to all of your data ETLing your data together or extract, transform, load, right? It's a SQL exercise, not a data science exercise. And then you're visualizing and you need to know like the rules of visualization. Um, and then you use that to engage the business people so that they, they understand what's going on with their business and increasingly in real time. So again, it's define and then, you know, define before you design. So you define it and the design is gather your data um, ETL your data and visualize your data. Now, with a data, if you want to ask what a data scientist does, they gather their data. They call it data wrangling. They ETL their data. They call it munging, uh, and then they visualize it out to the uh, out to, or and then they train a model off of that munge data because they're basically getting the data machine ready, and then they visualize it out into the into the into the businesses. So there's like, if you see it, it's just like one extra step, right? So when we were doing all these BI implementations at this point, we've done over 400 of them. Um, we realized, wow, this is like one easy extra step to make predictive analytics and machine learning a little bit more consumable um, by businesses because it's wrapped around their actual business outcomes that they want to monitor. And if you want to monitor it and you're investing in, in monitoring of it, then you probably want to know what's going on in the future and what's driving it. And when you have that level of, of work that's gone in, coming in with software and automating a bunch of that actually is a little bit easier to do, if that makes sense. So all we do is our product comes in and we take whatever you're monitoring from a BI perspective and we take that data set and... Sometimes that data set is in a format that is machine ready, 
or at the very least, it, it's pointing us in the right direction to go do additional SQL work with the data analyst to get it ready. And then we do a model exploration. And our what our system does is we we automate the the algorithm family selection, meaning is it a classifier, is it a regression, is it a time series problem that you're trying to tackle here? Um, we take your data and we run it across, you know, all the various algorithms in scikit-learn and and uh, produce hundreds, sometimes hundreds, oftentimes a dozen, two dozen candidate models for a forecast. We do the holdout analysis automatically and we surface the most accurate model based on that holdout analysis confusion matrix that we ran on your historical data. And, you know, quite frankly, the business person never sees any of that. It's all in the background. It's, I want to forecast this. If my data is ready, push a button. If not, bring in my data analyst, make it machine ready. And then, boom, I've got the best available model for me that I can now forecast with. So that's number one, what our product does. Um, and then that's predictive. And then we move into prescriptive analytics. But before I move into that, I mean, any questions about predictive and what I just described there? Because I think I talked for like three minutes and that's boring. <laughs> well, probably the, like, people yeah, the podcast, probably just get <laughs> Yeah, the podcast is so people hear you. So by no means that people, that's they usually fast forward me and Brent. Um, so, but you did bring up something very specific that I'd like to understand. You mentioned ETL. Um, and so as I get over my skis a little bit here, um, you know, as people do things like ETL, you know, they're normalizing the data, they're putting it into a format that they understand or into an existing construct. Uh, and a good friend of Brent and I taught us a while back, uh, matter of fact, probably on one of our podcasts, that part of ETL is throwing insights away, right? If you take a, a chunk of data and put it into a construct, all the other data around it that you threw away to, to munge it uh, is, has gone away and is no longer part of your insights. So is there a portion of what you're doing where you talk about things like your existing BI tools and things like that focused on the kind of existing BI world kind of structured data versus this kind of new world of unstructured? So that's my real question is you're talking about predictive and you're talking about your tools and you're talking about ETL. Is there a unstructured value to your tool or is it mainly focused on structured data? It's mainly focused on structured data. I mean, unstructured data is something that you know, like I'm a, I'm, you know, when I say I'm a wannabe nerd, right? Like I'm passionate about it, getting into unstructured data and deep learning on unstructured data sets like image and video and audio. Um, but that it's definitely crawl, walk, run, fly. And people are enamored with that stuff because it is the, it's, it's increasingly the peak of the hype cycle and they want to talk about it. But why bring up unstructured data when most businesses are still forecasting by looking at visual trends inside of an Excel report and telling their boss that what their boss wants to happen is going to happen so that they don't have to like answer a bunch of questions on why their forecast is off. Gotcha. Right. Like, that's how businesses are forecasting right now. Okay. Uh, unfortunately. Nice. So you know, back, back to what you said, I mean, what we're, what we find is People are paying data scientists, most of what they do is getting data ready in the right format for these various uh, algorithms. They're not doing a ton of math, right? Like that's that's kind of the hidden secret. So like you like there's this concept when I talk to these business decision makers that they need the math guy, right? And, and the best way I could describe it is these math guys basically know how to use Python, R, and SQL, and sometimes NoSQL. To, to, to get the data in the right format for an extremely advanced calculator to just run, right? And that's what they're, you know, they're, they're doing inside of their Jupyter Notebooks and in Python or in R Studio or something like that, right? So back to your point about the data, um, we find that once you've gone through the BI process, you're probably tracking more signal than noise, right? You're probably, the data is there to start picking up a signal in terms of forecasting. And then the process to improve that signal is analyzing and figuring out what data to include and what data to exclude. And uh, that's something that we, you know, our product helps people do. And, and additionally, uh, so one of the, as you talk about things like signal to noise, that's kind of also very compelling to me, right? Is uh, one of the big rules around predictive or any analytics um, is the kind of idea of unexplainability, right? So if you've yeah. gone through hitting a bunch of different algorithms to find the one that makes sense to give them the predictions they need, um, 
is part of your selection process to help them understand. Uh, I, I, I can't, I've given you an outcome that is explainable, not, Oh, Hey, here's an out- outcome that is unexplainable. Right. Yeah. Well, we, we prefer that people, um, First of all, I hate the word predictive analytics. I think it should be called forecast analytics because I feel like when you say prediction, um, you're either it's very binary and it's judgment, uh, whereas a forecast, it's like the weather guy. Eh, it's about fifty chance, fifty percent chance it's going to rain, uh, <laughs> and that's and that's really what we're providing. We're providing leading indica- er, indicators rather than lagging indicators. We're telling you, hey, this is more likely to happen than not likely to happen. Um, I think. Speaking in probabilistic statistical uh, fashion is it's not being done well in business today. They don't know how to talk in that manner. Um, people want to dumb it down to an oversimplification of will it happen or won't it happen? You know, you get an executive that asks that. I ask those types of questions when I'm, you know, when I'm turning the screws on somebody. And that's quite frankly not the way to think about it. Um, so what we want to drive is an iterative process. You get the best forecast you can, uh, to your question, is it explainable? Maybe, right? Maybe you've got a little bit of signal. Maybe there's a strong signal in the data that you've been collecting, but if it's off, um, the last thing people should be doing, like, especially like, and I, you know, not to call out our product, our, our product, we're just, we're helping you explore all the various mathematical approaches that are freely available, it's free math, right? Like to go figure out what mathematical approach will tease the strongest signal, accurate signal out of your data, right? And if it's inaccurate, right? If that, if that signal isn't strong, um, uh, people think that you use more math and really that's not what's going on. Your next steps should be one of two things. Either your data, you have a data quality issue, meaning there's a bunch of null values, or uh, meaning people aren't filling out. When I say null values, uh, you know, it's basically like you've got a sales team that doesn't fill out their their opportunities in Salesforce accurately. They have a bunch of missing fields, right? That's that's a data quality, data collection problem. Uh, or you screwed up the data in your ETL process. You mentioned that earlier, like you excluded data that you shouldn't have, or you 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 merged it up the wrong way. That's a data quality issue. And you should always, like, you, we're the human in the loop, as we call it, meaning before the machines take over, you know, our, our, our shrinking responsibilities is, is our gut is usually really good at, at doing uh, feature discovery of models, meaning what are the drivers and what is the, what are the signals. And, you know, that's how you usually start. That's how the BI process starts. And if you have a data quality problem, go fix that because you can't judge like, like for instance, like if I was tracking um, executive engagement as part of my sales process and my close rates and all that sort of stuff, and more than 70% of my opportunities had no data on whether or not the executive buyer had been engaged and how, how engaged they were. Um, that doesn't mean that that's not a signal. That means that that is a candidate signal that isn't really being accurately tracked, right? So that's an example of a data quality issue. Dive into that and make that better. Um, then if you, if you really think like you've exhausted that or something that you can run concurrently to data quality is um, essentially new data acquisition, right? Meaning I've got a data set that has 20 data points that I think are predictive to the outcome, but it's not really that predictive. And I actually think the quality on it's pretty good. Then what you need to do is scratch your head and say, what am I missing? What are the data points I'm missing? Because if you don't do that, basically you're saying as a business, you're saying, well, math doesn't work for us, right? We've done all this data collection and I want to forecast this and math doesn't work for my business. And you sound like an idiot, right? Like you sound like a person that doesn't understand how math and statistics work. So what you should do at that point is if your data quality is good, then you move to um, data, finding data discovery, like finding new data points that maybe you're tracking but isn't included in the model. Maybe, in the, you know, extending that case, maybe you are tracking well executive engagement as part of your sales process, but it's in some other system that you need to ETL that data into your data set, right? Or maybe you're not tracking it. And that's that's sort of a whiteboarding session is the way I like to do it. Again, it's a human in the loop. We gotta we we gotta be we gotta have jobs. We gotta have influence on this. 
it's, all right, guys, our data isn't describing, we're not getting enough signal out of what we're tracking. What are we missing, right? And that's, that's smart business people in a room just brainstorming and then saying, hey, do we have this data? Can we, can we retroactively create this data? Or we have an aha moment. We're like, yeah, this this has got to be influencing. Maybe it's a macroeconomic and you know influencer, a competitive influencer. Maybe it's an internal influencer. And then what we call that, and and it's a phrase that I'm trying to drive, which is data data hungry with purpose, right? Like, don't just dump all your data into a data lake, right? Like, why am I collecting this data? Why am I asking my sales team to add yet another, you know, field? to their Salesforce opportunities, and am I explaining it to them? Like, guys, I need you to start tracking this because we think this might be a big indicator of whether or not you should spend time on this opportunity. Absolutely. So <clears throat> we've talked about um, predictive analytics. We've talked about descriptive analytics, and you brought up uh, prescriptive analytics. So sure. basically, what should you do? So talk to us about where prescriptive analytics um, kind of is in its maturity, and then also how Big Squid can can help uh, make that a reality. Yeah, and I think this is a tr- like I think prescriptive analytics is nearly non-existent in business today, um, and I think there's a translation problem that we're trying to t- uh, between data scientists and um, the business decision makers that we're trying to tackle through software um, and. You know, to explain why I think that, one of the byproducts of many models, especially like decision trees, for instance, that you get is a, it's what's called a variable importance to the model, right? It's, it, or feature importance to the model. Meaning I have a forecast that I've created and I want to forecast data point, you know, essentially data point X, and then I have variables Y1 through Y20, if that makes sense. Am I going too far into algebra here? Is this okay? You guys follow me? <laughs> keep going. Keep on going. All right. All right. So you went too far like, a long time ago. So go ahead with your uh, math and smart stuff. <laughs> so it's basically like I have like, let's say I have 21 data points and one, you know, 21 columns of data in an Excel spreadsheet, right? And column number one is what I want to forecast. And I think, and that's X variable. And then the Y or and then the, and then the Y's uh, are columns two through 21. What you get as a byproduct in that feature importance of the model is you get a relative rank order of how influential each of those variables are after training to forecasting the outcome. So it may be that the the variable in column five is your number one driver, right? Your number one most influential uh, uh, driver to the outcome. And there could be like five on the bottom that are almost inconsequential and should quite frankly be excluded the model because they're more noise than signal. Um, to, to give that a real world example, we were working with, you know, it was, it was, it was a fortune 500 company, big food services company where they, you know, they do food services and cafeterias, um, you know, and, and they have trucking, you know, trucks, they have warehouses, a lot of hourly employees lifting things using knives and they have a lot of workmen's comp claims, right? And with hourly employees, and they can't tackle all of them. They have a small team of about 20 people internally that are supposed to identify and dive into what are the most uh, extreme or severe, as they call it, cases. And severity is three things. It's um, will they return to work? When will they return to work? And quite frankly, would they sue us? Is there a monetary severity to this? And um, we looked at all of their data. Number one was a no-brainer, right? It's did they lawyer up, right? If they lawyer up, it was literally 3x the, the number two variable influencing the severity of an outcome. But number two, they weren't really even monitoring it. It was the distance that that person has to drive to work, right? So that is number two, and it was twice as influential as the actual injury itself, like the category of injury, meaning back, head, neck, extremity, right? Um, it was actually, does this person have to drive a long distance to work? And that's where you get that stuff, and we it's called, you know, again, feature importance to the model, variable importance to the model. 
I think that's too academic. We, dry, we, we distill it down to drivers, right? I'm forecasting the outcome of severity. What is driving that outcome? What metrics should I watch? And which metrics should I watch with less you know, intent? And where should I focus my limited time, money, and resources of my business to fix this and prescribe an action that will change the outcome? And in the case of them, it's not like they could just go out and fire everybody that drives more than 30 minutes to work, for instance. But they could probably start working that into their business practices and their hiring practices moving forward to say, hey, look, if you're hiring somebody that's got more than a 30-minute commute to an hourly job, you're probably like the, the, the if, if something does happen, the likelihood that they're, they're going to have a severe claim is going to go up. Right. And we and we do the same thing in, tr- in employee churn models. Right. Driving distance, we found, is very influential to uh, to churn in with employees. Right. And being able to track that and most HR departments, quite frankly, aren't tracking that. And mathematically, in a data from a data perspective, it's very easy. I can take their home address. What's the lat long of that? Take where they work. What's the lat long of that? And create a create a uh, essentially a linear line between them. It doesn't. It's not perfect, right? Because traffic can be very highly variable in that radius. But it is a bigger signal that most companies aren't using to prescribe action moving forward. And that's what our product does, right? We look at all of your data. We automatically surface the best model, but we also show you the rank order influencers or drivers of that outcome. And then the next thing that we do, so not only can we give you that insight, is we allow you to do scenario planning, right? So, all right, what if I did over the next year lower the average driving distance to work from, uh, you know, let's call it 15 miles to 10 miles, right? What if I could pull that off? What influence would that have on the severity of my claims and the employee turnover at my company, right? save that as a model, right? And say, hey, this is, if we can drive this down by, you know, what was that, 30% or 33.3%, um, what will the influence be on my business, right? And that is that is prescriptive analytics, is taking insights and creating future actions based on data, right? That's, that's, that's my perspective. I could be wrong. There's a lot of smarter people with more, you know, more acronyms after their name, that write books that probably would disagree with me or, but that's, that's what we're seeing working with businesses right now when it comes to predictive and prescriptive analytics. Yeah. I I think it certainly makes sense. Um, you know, clearly, clearly people, you know, believe in what you guys are doing and, and how you're doing it. I just wanted to to congratulate you guys. You just got a big $3 million seed fund here. in uh, I think March of, of 2017. So, um, obviously you guys are doing well and, and proving some people that, uh, that your model is working. Um, so tell us a little bit about what that process has been like. You're an eight-year-old company, and yeah. here you are, right, with uh, seed funding of three million bucks. Yeah, well, I mean, we we were really excited about the teams that we brought on board. I mean, I've got, you know, Kickstart is kind of a is you know seed fund is kind of a kingmaker of the Salt Lake and Utah tech scene, which is one of those outside of Silicon Valley top ten markets for startups um and then we we got the guys over at silverton a bunch of former austin ventures guys um i mean these people have seen a lot of deals done a lot of deals in the software space and quite frankly they would not have invested in us if we were a consulting company that had some quasi interesting technology you know their due diligence process is do you have actual software do you have an actual usable self-service product and the answer is yes and the answer is we're doing it with not just fortune 500 we've got you know a fortune 10 customer we're working with um very large enterprise companies but then also i've got a i've actually got we're working with a it's not a small but an independent insurance broker that makes less than 20 million dollars a year in top line revenue you know 25 employees and they're They've invested in our product uh, and and are getting insights on where they should spend their time, money, and effort. Right, and I and it's been great. Right, and that's and that's why we felt like we had to go take down some cash. Is when you when you when you when you strike on something like that, it's time to go build the combination of 
keep investing in your tech and start building out your sales and marketing organization and uh, your burn rate goes up, right? In a healthy way. I mean, what, Amazon took 10 years to make money? Uh, not saying we're Amazon, but uh, that's that's the game, right? We're growing and we're on fire with growth and, you know, we're, we're, we're helping anywhere from, you know, middle market businesses all the way up to some of the largest companies in the world at this point tackle these problems. And so as you're absolutely as you're small and you I mean smallish and you're started you know started with what you're doing and obviously you're taking in more money to grow what you're doing and expand your uh, your integrations your tools all these kind of things you know frankly just hit a larger customer base right so I mean it's traditional yeah. marketing right you, you hit the first pin knock it down behind you, you got to figure out how to hit the rest of the pins right so um, you know that is so as you look at that what are your integrations today? Like if somebody comes to you today and says, I need, you know, I'm, I need big squid in my life. What do they already have to have in place to be able to be successful? Uh, or, or, you know, how do you, how do you go about getting somebody to become a customer? I mean, let's just say they're all in, they believe what you're saying, what technology has to be in place to be able to actually do this. So what we want to do is we want to, and, and, the, and not only what technology do they need in place, but what technology do they need to have in place and can we help them get in place? Because that's where we are using our consultative arms still is um, I encourage anybody that has already invested into BI, you know, we can help you, right? If you feel like you've nailed, you've made a BI investment where either through like Tableau or Domo or something like that, like you are able to see what is going on with your business in real time, um, we can help you, right? We can, we can integrate and tease uh, uh, insights out of that and our product will work with you. Um, if you haven't done that, again, that's where we also want to talk to you. If you have a, hopefully you have a business outcome that you're driving or business initiatives that you're driving that map to the biggest business initiatives of the company, Right. Like everybody, like the CEO sets the tone. These are the three initiatives that we're driving. Hey, I'm in sales or I'm in HR and this is how I map to them. These are my top three. Just that's what you should start with. Don't start with the technology. Don't start with the data. If you want to come talk to us, we'll basically be your Sherpa. We'll say, okay, well, you want to, you want to know what's going on with this outcome. Do you have any systems that are collecting data? Yes, I've got 10. Well, then that sounds like you have a, Disparate, di- disparate data, disparate, you know, solutions problem. Um, are you, have you created a data warehouse? Are you using something like Domo to, you know, ETL all of your data together with a bunch of connectors? Um, where have you made investments at this point? Um, and we get the lay of the land there. And then we, we essentially go in and sip the data. I call it sipping in the data that they need to answer their questions rather than extracting the entire database of Salesforce into a data lake, for instance, right? Like maybe I just need these 20 fields out of leads and opportunities and I can get all the insights that I need from a BI perspective. And then hopefully that sets the table for our product to come in and automate the model exploration capabilities for you. So let's let's kind of uh, touch on that point. So BI, I was going to ask you know specifically what what tools uh, kind of make up uh, you know BI quote unquote. And you kind of brought up some Domo and Tableau, and I know there's certainly more to that. There's data warehouses, um, but in in your definition, describe business intelligence. Let's talk about the traditional approach to that and the new way of of, of tackling that yeah. that problem. Yeah, and that's where, quite frankly, I mean, I, I, you know, in full disclosure, we're we're a strong Domo partner. So, you know, you can believe or not believe what I'm about to say, but I strongly believe it. Um, traditional BI and where it's going is a piecemeal approach, right? For instance, uh, Tableau and Power BI; those are the visualization layer. You know, they'll they'll argue, and you go on their website, their marketing will say, "Hey, we we have data solutions too." No, they don't have data solutions. It's, you know. Power BI works very well if you've invested in, for instance, an Azure or SQL Server data warehouse, right? Like you have your data in a data warehouse. It's ETL together right there, right? And then maybe you then visualize it on top of it. But it is it is three, essentially three capabilities that you need to have to complete your BI stack. You need your, your data coal, coalescence, your data warehouse, your data lake, whatever buzzword you want to use to describe it. Like 
I'm taking data from multiple systems and putting it in one location, right? Check number one. Number two, you need an ETL tool. In a lot of cases, you can do that with your data warehouse tools. Like you can run a SQL query or join query uh, inside of Azure, for instance, and inside of your instance of uh, that data warehouse. But but if you're doing it inside of that systems, it's typically an IT job, right? Like your marketing person isn't going in and doing some SQL joins, even though it's not that intimidating, right? Um, so there's specialized ETL tools, like a really great company that does this well is Alteryx, for instance. So I've, I've invested in a data warehouse with like Cloudera, Teradata, EMC. Um, then I bring an Alteryx that extracts the data and makes it a little bit easier for people to self-service instead of making it an IT ticket job to get the data that I want in the tabular format that I need and the structure format I need. So that's checkbox number two. Do I have an ETL tool? The third version, is, uh, the third component is your visualization and I would say and engagement layer, right? Meaning how are you pushing the visualizations out in the right insightful format to read information top down or bottom up? And how are you um, democratizing that data visually and consumably throughout the organization, right? Is it, is it a desktop solution? Is it something that I'm emailing around or, you know, or is it something that is cloud-based? And, you know, there's other cloud-based systems than Domo out there like Looker, Burst, you know, some of those guys where I can log into a system uh, either on my desktop or in the case of Domo, like I, I consume most of Domo mobile uh, on my mobile app. Um, and I can actually see what's going on in real time. And then I can further, one of the other things I like about Domo is there's a chat system, almost like a Slack system around all the visualizations. And I can say, hey, this looks off. Is the data off or is there a problem that I need to be getting on top of? And it alerts everybody following that report. So you can piecemeal it together. I mean, I threw out some like the more traditional data players like Cloudera, EMC, uh, Teradata, AWS, Azure, those are data systems. You have your ETL systems like the Alteryx of the world. And you have pure visualization tools like Tableau, Power BI. And then you have somebody like Domo who is a fully integrated vertical play, right? They have a data warehouse, they have connectors, they have ETL tools for non-technical people and then they have visualization tools and engagement tools on top of that yeah our, our research on domo just so that i can kind of boil down the parts that you said we need you know because you basically said from your perspective domo kind of is full service of those things but if you already had some investments um one of the things that you clearly said was that you needed something that looks like an enterprise service bus right because that's one of the things domo does is all the connectors into all the other types of data um yep. So, and then the other one, you said an ETL tool. Um, what about something like a master, is, is like an actual traditional MDM tool also considered to be ETL or are there some, some specific things that MDMs don't do? Well, I mean, I think they're, those are more expert tools for expert hands, okay. quite frankly. So simplify, yeah, I mean, yeah, so Domo's simplified for maybe you're not an expert, but you still want to mess with the data kind of thing. Yeah, and, and Alteryx does this very well too. Okay. Uh, but they give you like visual ETL tools, okay. right? Like, like I don't know if you've ever used like uh, SPSS or some of those other players where you basically you drag tiles down and say, this, these are my three data sets and I want to ETL them into, you know, with like very visually you drop in as tiles and I want to do a join between them on these features, right? Like a business person can consume that. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about these more like, Let's put it this way, probably the biggest indicator uh, of whether or not your data and ETL tools are consumable by the broader business is, is it coming out, it, is, the, is the IT department and the CIO organization the primary buyer? If so, they're probably investing in tools that are IT tickets, quite frankly. Um, and that, yeah, they can get you there, but do you, do you really want them to be the bottleneck? I mean, the show that we're talking about here, it's about predictive analytics, the bottle the bottleneck around data scientist is our problem right now. Mm -hmm. There's not enough data scientists to go around. Um, they're doing things too manually. Uh, do you want to exacerbate that situation by making even your data collection and ETL process manual and IT ticket process, right? Or do you want to enable and democratize not just the visualization, but enable people? Because I think people can do this because I'm actually watching them do it. Where, for instance, I got a home builder, like literally the CEO uh, home builder of a mid-market, 
you know, home builder company, he can do his visual ETL work himself. When he wants to answer a question, he can actually drop in the tiles and understand it. He's not having to write SQL code and not understand that it's not running because the semicolon's not in the right place, right? Like yeah. he's never going to get to that level. So he can drop in tiles in in a, a, a ETL tool and then run out to the job site and drop in tiles in their bathroom. So he's all day <laughs> long. Exactly. He's got tiles all that day is, long. That so. is so witty. That <laughs> that's that's all I bring to the show. So I that mean, was, that, that was that was speedy though, man. That yeah. was quick. So, uh, but I mean, that's pretty cool stuff, and it's interesting. And again, uh, we had a guest, guest recently who mentioned that a lot of a lot of data scientists end up just being Jira ticket uh, wranglers, right? Like they're just all they're doing is just going out and closing tickets and in creating queries for people, and that's not what real data science is. So I think you're hitting on the same problems that other people are. So. Um, I could see where what you're talking about with Domo and Alterix makes sense for, again, put the tools in the hands of the people. We've seen this again. Uh, Brent, the, the guest from the former Facebookers who were talking about democratizing data the exact same way, different big data tools. I'm blanking on their names offhand because we talked to too many people and we don't care enough to remember their <laughs> names. But, uh, um, you know, awesome stuff there. That's So now as we move into, okay, we talked about how you can get it, the kind of things that need to be in place to get those kind of things. Uh, and frankly, yeah. it sounds like underneath the covers, you really don't care what it is. They've got some, uh, you know, essential middleware uh, and things that they've kind of already done, or you would teach them how to do to start to get to that next layer. Now we talk about people who are using it and how they're using it. So it'd be really cool if you could show us kind of a traditional way that people are using it. You know, the kind of, the, hey, this, this customer came in with this thing. They had this major outcome and they needed to do their business and it went great. And the other thing we'd like to see is, that customer came in and you, they came out of left field and they asked you to solve a problem that you never expected to have to solve, but the outcome was yeah. really cool and it's a fun story. Yeah. So, um, let's just say we're, we, like, I got a good one for you because not only I, it, not only is it hit on that, it hits on the democratization of data and not only the democratization of data, the, the, the democratization and what I call pushing to the front lines, predictive insights. So we work with, it's, let's just call it a retail service franchise company, right? Meaning they set up shops and they provide a service uh, to people. They're not necessarily selling physical products, although they can, that's part of their business. They're one of the fastest growing in the US. And um, what, again, we started with business outcomes with them. We said, what are you trying to drive? And they said, we're trying to drive regular return business because if they nail that people can come back as often as once a month right and we're also trying to get the uh the the the, the revenue per customer up right okay well those are very consumable things and they also wanted to find a way to um make make it scalable so the individuals in the store are doing this so now we have a challenge can we take like a service professional? It could be like changing oil, um, cutting hair, waxing backs, right? Like think of anything like that, um, right? Like how do I take that person and enable them to use predictive analytics? Um, so we thought hard about this. This was left field, but it's also very grounded in, in a business problem and they had the data to support it. So what we did was we built out a couple models we built on an individual cu customer level, what is their propensity to return for more service, right? And come back in next month. Um, and that's a, and that's, and that's, that's a model that your average data scientist could build and you can debate the accuracy of it, but it's more accurate and insightful than what they had, right? Um, and then we bifurcated that group and we said, based on, you know, who are the people rank order top to bottom that are more likely to come back that don't have an appointment scheduled, right? Um, in those cases, it now you have a prioritized way to reach out to them to get back into the store. And with something like, in this case, we use Domo. Domo has a mobile app. So you could literally download the Domo app on that store manager's iPad or phone, and they click on a report and they get here are all the customers, like if you've got downtime, your store struggling with return visitors, you don't have enough people in, rather than twiddling your thumbs, email call these 10 people today because these are the 10 people most likely to come back into your store, right? Uh, 
And then the second sets of models that we built were um, both service and retail product upsell propensity, meaning what are they more likely to buy as their first service and an upsell service? So when that person's calling them, hey, you know, I see that you came in last time for this service. Please come back in for that. Oh, and have you thought about doing this in addition to that, right? Um, and then the second group, meaning the people that already have an appointment, we created a version that publishes down to the, the day that that person walks in, they can open up the Domo app as the individual service provider. This could be a guy climbing under, you know, the, under the, the, under the garage to change oil, for instance. Um, what are your appointments for the day, right? And granted, most oil stations, there, there could be people that come in outside of that. But if they're if they're scheduled to come in for some type of service um, uh, at a at an auto shop or like an auto dealership, I can see how likely is that person to come back, and I can see what is their next upsell that I should be offering them, right? And so when I'm talking to that person, I see okay, these are my twelve people. These are the people that I need to focus on getting back in first. These are the people that are probably going if I try to schedule them. It's going to be there's not a lot of friction there, and they're going to reschedule. And while they're here, these are the top upsells that I could be offering them, right? So right there, we just did, we just did um, BI, we just did big data, we just did predictive analytics, we just did prescriptive analytics, and we democratized it all the way to the to an hourly employee. Very cool. So Chris, uh, we we've heard a lot of examples, you know, waxing guys' backs, changing oil, very physical things, physical uh, stores, brick and mortar. Where is the, uh, what about the other side of the coin, right? So something like, uh, you know, a, 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 a mobile or web company, uh, mm -hmm. a B2B type company, what, uh, how, do, how do you work in their world? I'm assuming you do, but um, looking at the verticals that you guys support often are kind of traditional brick and mortars, but how else can you help customers out that are more digital? Yeah, I mean, if they're more digital media technology, uh, their sales department, it's stuff like lead qualification, um, customer acquisition, opportunity conversion, sales velocity, their marketing department could be, uh, you know, media mix, right? Like how, how do I advertise my, my spend for operations? Um, what's your inventory forecast, right? If you're, you're like, you could be an online retailer and let's say you're not a drop shipper. Um, how much of what product do I need in my, in my warehouse? Um, and then also, you know, on the HR side, we can still help them with employee retention, employee satisfaction and customer, uh, and then on the, on the client services side, customer retention and customer satisfaction and upsells. Okay, cool. Uh, and then, um, so one of the things that we haven't really touched on, and we've got a few minutes left and we want to be mindful of your time is the aspect of machine learning within the big squid platform. So talk to us about what it is and how you're using it and uh, what has been some of the outcomes of it. Yeah, I touched on this briefly. I mean, basically, basically what a data scientist do, is doing is they're identifying, um, they're manually in most cases, identifying what algorithmic paradigm or algorithm family to use, right? They're identifying, is this, am, I, am I doing a classification? Am I doing a regression or am I doing a time series? That's like nine, nine out of 10 fall into those three families and some some subsets of them. Um, we've if, if you tell us what you want to forecast, we've automated, um, you know, figuring out which, which one you want to do, right? And then we just load the publicly available algorithms, and that's the vast majority of algorithms. There's not a lot of companies out there creating new, like, random forest analysis, right? Like, you know, that's coming out of academia, not business in a lot of cases. They could be tuning models, um, but that's where we just do, we do an automated exploration of your data and feature inclusion combinations or variable inclusion, uh, combinations for dozens of different algorithms. Right. And that overcomes a couple things. Like if you're a data scientist, um, first of all, if you build that model, you have to, and then we keep retraining it and we keep run, running your data through that model. Right. So for a data scientist, you mentioned it earlier, like uh, data scientists is spending a lot of their time um, on running tickets and, and tweaking the model and everything like that. If you hire a data scientist, 
you are usually syncing them into one to six models that they need to maintain. And I would argue that businesses need to be using dozens. And the reason why I say that is they now have to manually maintain that model. They have to go manually rerun it. They have to manually deploy it. They have to manually update things, right? What we would argue is that a data science, and then on top of that, when they do their algorithm selection, there is bias out there. Believe it or not, even these logical statistical guys in the data scientist world, they may say, hey, I prefer a naive Bayes over uh, like a Bayesian model over a random forest approach to this classifier. And then that's all they'll use, right? They're not exploring and building dozens of models. Some of them do, but that's exhaustive and time consuming, right? So what we do is we automate that and we scale their capabilities throughout the organization. We also are helping, we do a number of things. We help a data scientist do the exploration of existing capabilities um, to build out their models and, um, and scale across the organization at the end of the day. Um, the second thing that we're doing is, is we're taking data experts, meaning somebody that just knows SQL and knows like, and is like a data slash business analyst. And internally we've done this and we've done this with customers. We're turning them into what we call citizen data scientists. We teach them in the context of your data needs to look like this. If you're going to run a classifier, your data needs to look like this. If you're going to run a regression, right? They don't need to learn R. They don't need to learn Python. They don't need to learn how to set up their environment, Right. That's what we're doing with data science right now and machine learning. Okay, cool. So you talked about you know helping customers like you know the platform is choosing algorithms. I watched a, a demo of of the product being used, and it would it would basically grade how well the specific algorithm um, you know predicted, right? Um, so so based on that, do you have a feedback loop that says, okay, cool? So we've graded, uh, you know, this is a B plus and this is a D. And is there any way to actually get a feedback loop which says, hey, we in the real world when we when we the predictiveness of it, the, here's the actual, did we come back and then yeah. uh, beef up that that machine learning algorithm and also the the actual algorithm you're using to to run the the analysis with? Yeah, and then just and just for terminology's sake, and I and I did this like I had to learn this. Um, we're not we're not typically tuning an algorithm. The way to think about this is, data plus algorithm or data plus math equals a model, right? You tune, you, you tend to tune and add data, better and better data into your model, right? And that is a big misleading thing. A lot of, um, a lot of businesses, marketing departments have picked up on the word algorithm and it makes them sound smart and they're, they're pitching a model or they're building models, but they say we build algorithms or we built this algorithm. It's extremely misleading. Right. But what we do, uh, back to your question, is we explore it and we, we keep retraining. We automate the retraining and we can tell you, hey, this was accurate over time or the accuracy and the confidence score on this model is slipping. And remember, we talked about now you got to go back into how do you improve your model? Start with the data. Is your data quality going down or are you missing a new data point that is now newly influencing the outcome? That is how you should be thinking about it. Don't go to the math, go to the data first, right? And the other thing our product does is we, we provide a score for the business decision maker because that's our core, our core user as we see it to just basically give them a warning, say, hey, this is highly accurate. You could probably make some business decisions on it. But if it's middling to bad, go talk to a data scientist. And then you talk about scaling your data scientist investments at a, at a, at a business. You may already may only be able to afford one to three of them. Imagine if, if, if they had problems coming at them that said, hey, I started to build this model. This is the business outcome that I'm trying to forecast. I think it's this data, but it's scoring really low. What we do is it's not a black box. You can open it up and you can see, hey, these were the top three scoring algorithms. And here's the 20 different fit factors uh, that a data scientist can consume uh, to determine how accurate the models are. Awesome, very cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, this is this is an ever evolving world, and uh, it's neat to see the guys are kind of filling a niche. Um, one of the things regarding the software um, is. You know, where does it run? Is this a is this a software as a service? Is it a cloud based model? Is it something they run on premises? What's the what's the model? Yeah, so we are we're definitely cloud based, um, but we can work we 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 can punch through firewalls and work with on prem 
BI stacks as well. Um, that's something that we can we can do. But you know, you, then you're relying on us for security. But we we're doing that for some of the most secure healthcare companies out there, for instance, uh, with some data and. And that's and that's uh, that's our job. I mean, things are inevitably moving to the cloud, uh, at least for now. And uh, we 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 take your data and its security extremely uh, serious, and we've built a very secure system. Very cool. So, Chris, we've talked a lot about uh, you, the product, the industry as a whole, and where the market is going. Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to cover before we close this thing down? Um. You know, I think I think the biggest thing is where every one of these, like we called it buzzword bingo earlier, like big data, BI, analytics, predictive analytics, machine learning, deep learning, AI. We are at the peak of the hype cycle right now. Um, if there's anything that I would want to do is deflate that balloon ahead of time to save us some credibility, because I think we're overselling what our capabilities are. I think people, just like I mentioned with algorithms, I think people are adopting the word uh, artificial intelligence um, ahead of schedule. Uh, I think the marketing departments are grabbing a hold of these words and misusing them. Um, and I think we're pumping up the expectations way too high. Uh, you know, I if there was a brand that I would like Big Squid to establish, and you know, especially through our consultative approach, it's how do we not use the buzzword bingo to sell to you? How do I come in and explain to you, okay, yeah, that product says it's an AI, has an AI you know, capability. It's not AI. It's not deep learning. It's not crushing unstructured data sets, right? It's, you know, like, that's just like an example. That's one thing that I wish that we were doing a better job of, but I've, I've lived this through this before. I was like an early search engine optimization ninja, right? And there was a black art mystique thing about how do you get those rankings to show up in Google? And I'd be like, ha, 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 I'll never tell you. You're going to pay me, right? Like that's what data scientists are doing now. They, they've got secret sauce. Um, they're writing a hype, uh, a hype cycle and companies are writing hype cycles and it and, and my fear is that the trough of disappointment, if you guys are familiar with like the Gartner hype cycle, mm -hmm. peak of hype, you know, the bottom of the trough of disappointment, and then on into like realistic expectations. My goal is to skip as much of that as possible to avoid a, a great fall. Because what I'm, I'm already seeing is we will like, we'll engage with somebody who's like, oh yeah, we hired Watson and it didn't work for us. So we don't think, and it's like in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Okay, so based on your experience and your misset expectations, you're saying that math and statistics doesn't apply to your business. And I think that's wrong, right? And I think that's sad. And I think there's a massive opportunity to make businesses more efficient, provide better service, better products, employ people better, make everybody happier. Uh, and, and we just got to deflate the hype cycle. So that's the one thing, like, if anybody out there is confused by the buzzword bingo, as I call it. Uh, if anybody out there is smelling the BS in the air, like come talk to me, like, you know, shoot me an email, hit me up on Twitter. Like, 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 let me, let me help you. Right. Or let my team help you. We'll, 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 we'll cut through the clutter for you. Awesome. Well, thanks. So, so Chris, what is, what's your Twitter handle where folks can reach you? Uh, at C K N O C H. Easy enough. Cool. And then you guys were at Domo Palooza. Uh, when and where can we find you or Big Squid next out uh, kind of in the scene? Uh, you know, we're doing, we're concentrating on a lot of like uh, small gatherings. Like the last one we did, we were up in Chicago. We got a suite at, at Wrigley and, you know, just brought together like 20 people that we're having really good active conversations with that we feel like we can help. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I, we don't have an agenda to go like crush a bunch of events. Um, the inbound interest for us and the credibility we're trying to gain is, is enough for us right now. So, you know, just go to our website. It, I mean, it's, how do you forget big squid, right? Like, what does that even mean? Uh, go to big, <laughs> go to big squid.com, you know, hit us up and um, just say, Hey, I need help. Right. Like you don't need to come to us with a specific, you know, specific, uh, 
technological question, just be like, hey, I'm trying to drive these business outcomes. I think what you're talking about can help us. Um, I'd like to talk to you guys. And that's that's how this starts. That's how we can help you. Conversation, man. Very cool. So um, the last thing then, so reading suggestions, uh, how do you either, this can be this can be professional or personal. What are you reading right now? And uh, just want to share with our listeners. Yeah. So um, my, my favorite book over the last 12 months was uh, The Economic Singularity. Um, and I think you guys are, you guys are probably, and everybody in this like geeky tech world is familiar with the Ray Kurzweil singularity, like the convergence of humanity and technology. There's a lot of people talking about, oh, all of our jobs are going to go away, right? Like everybody talks about the apocalyptic and the overly optimistic vision. Um, this book, it was written in 2016, so it's still very relevant and has relevant information. And it talks about the transition period and the cultural, socioeconomic uh, upheaval uh, between here and there, right? Everybody's talking about like the here and the there, but nobody's talking about the journey in between. And I thought it was an incredibly insightful book for that. Um, the second book that I really like is, uh, it's a book called The Curiosity Cycle. And that's more for me as a parent. It's written by a, uh, I believe he's a Stanford uh, professor that it concentrates on uh, AI, robotics, and the impending disruption. And it's written as a parenting guide, right? Like how do you, how do you raise your children to be prepared for a world where machines are increasingly taking away jobs? And like a really like short, short example on that one would be um, you could take the world's biggest expert in birds, and put them on stage in Jeopardy with Watson and ask questions about, you know, name all the birds that can fly and can't fly. And Watson will crush that expert, the world's top expert. But if you ask both of them, if you take a pigeon and pour maple syrup all over it, can it fly? Watson is stumped because it hasn't encountered that trained model before. But a human can actually, their curiosity can put together models that didn't exist in the, in data sets out there and answer questions faster through intuition. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that machines won't tackle that eventually, but that is teaching your kids to be inherently curious and think for themselves and own their learning is, is super important as, as we move into a, a, a bold new, uh, new reality in, in terms of economics and our future. Well, speaking of maple syrup, I am hungry. Uh, yeah. We're gonna show you. We're gonna shut down the hot owl for today, but hopefully, the hot owl persists into the future. AI cannot take over. I have not heard a good AI podcast yet. I don't know about you, Brian, but uh, I certainly have not. Um, anyway, accepted. My yeah. yeah, my my definition of how artificially intelligent some podcast hosts are says maybe there are some good AI podcasts. <laughs> it's mainly because the AI picks the right guest. Right. Uh, so very cool. Um, again, Chris, thanks for being on today. To all of our listeners out there, uh, tweet Chris, tweet us, let us know, get social with us, let us know how we're doing, what you want to hear next. And if you want to hear more from Chris, this has been a fun one for us. With that, we're going to shut down the hot aisle today. My name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. Chris Knock, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, guys.